to find how do you do my traffic loving friends it is i denver 7 traffic anchor jason luber with you again for another lovely episode of the driving you crazy podcast now hosted on podbean what up podbean i'm, I'm the pedestrian advocate <laughs> joseph peters i am hosted at a high-rise apartment building in downtown denver Right over by the King Supers, right? Yep. The one on Spear? Yes, sir. Yes, I remember. I used to deliver pizzas over there. It's it kind of amazes. It's, it's tough for a pizza delivery guy to get in and out of that place. It is. Um, at the same time, I'm always eager to welcome my pizza delivery guy into the building. So there you go. There you, go. <laughs> <laughs> you can still hear us on SoundCloud for the moment until they shut down or I stop posting to their site. Because I, I figured out here, I, I still have to post to SoundCloud. If you want to listen on SoundCloud, I still have to separately post there. Otherwise, the RSS feed is delivered everywhere, like to iTunes and to Google Play and all the other places that you can uh, listen to it. Uh, except for uh, SoundCloud, where I have to do it separately, which is kind of a pain in the butt. But you know. We love you, SoundCloud. Until you shut down. Don't stop clicking on us on SoundCloud. <laughs> Until they shut down. Well, we haven't talked much about the tragedy in Houston as the floodwaters are still covering many neighborhoods down there. And this, as I've been watching Irma. So Irma, as of our taping here, is right now ravaging parts of the Lesser Antilles, the Caribbean islands down there. It's about to go right through Puerto Rico. And so last night I was listening to this. It's called ABS TV radio from Antigua and Barbuda, and I was listening to them all night long, and it was fascinating as they as they as their broadcast guys were on the air the whole time, and then they would take a break and play some music and then come back and do little updates and that sort of thing. But it, it, but it sounded like they kind of survived, and they gave this one report. Barbuda was right in the eye of the hurricane, and it, uh, the eye passed right over it. They said that it, everything got calm. For about an hour and a half, and then all hell broke loose again. It was it was really interesting to hear their account of, of how that. And I was just thinking, eighteen hundreds or whatever, you know, when when people were first down there, seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. Could you imagine having a hurricane of this size? Well, and, you would not know. knowing. That's just it. You wouldn't know. You would just assume, hey, it's raining for a really long time, and or, now it's oh, really windy. Exactly. Um, I mean, it, it's. Always interesting to watch as these paths develop. When I was living on coastal North Carolina, we had a couple of tropical storms come our way and then miss. And so, you know, jokingly, I've heard them called weather terrorists, but the weather experts who try to convince everybody, hey, you need to get out of here ASAP for storms that don't appe- that don't actually wind up being a big deal. This one seems a little bit different. Like this, this one's actually could cause some serious damage to uh, coastal Florida. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a really big deal, and so everybody in Florida is is trying to get out of there. We're going to Florida here in early October, um, and. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what's left by the time I get there in a month. Um, well, and it's always possible that Irma loses a lot of strength as it's yeah. going over those islands in the Caribbean. I mean, that's what we usually see with storms like these, that they weaken significantly in magnitude. The problem with Irma is that it's so strong right now that even if it does weaken substantially, it's still a Cat 4. Yeah. And it's still going to be packing sustained winds in the 150, 160 mile an hour range. Yeah, they were calling it the Category 5 plus, 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 because you can't have categories up to whatever it is. I mean, uh, up to what it what it would be. If yeah. You did have categories up to ten. If they did have a category six, this would absolutely qualify. Yeah. And we were—we, it wasn't me and you, but we were joking the other day that like you don't realize how bad 
15 mile an hour winds feel until you're yeah. in them for a while. And then it's like, oh, wow, this is awful. You know, and that's 15 <laughs> miles an hour. Yeah. So imagine 165 twice as fast as the car zooming past you on the interstate. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and, and these places, like it could be, we'll see what happens with South Florida. But Houston, it's going to take years before they're anywhere near normal. Uh, one of the problems they're dealing with right now is the loss of all the cars in the floods. Uh, there were hundreds of thousands of cars damaged or destroyed. So before people start to replace those cars and trucks, car makers are now starting to ship a lot of new cars that way. And I've heard numbers of like one in seven cars in Houston could be done for. An economist for Cox Automotive that they estimate that maybe between 300 and 500,000 people will have lost their cars in the floods. That's a lot of people. That's amazing. Keep in mind, Houston is really a spread out city, and it's uh, it's tough to get around without a car, and just about everybody has a car there in Houston. Absolutely. So Pete DeLongchamps, he's the vice president of manufacturer relations at Group One Automotive. They're actually the third largest U.S. auto dealer group. He said the company prepared for the storm, with a plan they designed after Hurricane Katrina, what they did is they moved many, if not most, of their cars and trucks to higher ground and then cleaned all their roof drains to avoid any cave-ins before the storm and the floods. And because of that, Group 1 lost a, quote, relatively small percentage of inventory and then reopened their roughly 25 dealerships in the Houston and Beaumont area late last week. And early estimates for the number of Harvey damage vehicles needing replacement range from half a million to almost a million cars and trucks. A million cars and trucks that need to be replaced. Now, by Thursday, AutoNation, the largest U.S. auto retail chain last week, had reopened about 17 stores in Houston. They're moving cars and trucks from other regions, including here, down there. And a company spokesman said that AutoNation plans to move 500 to 1,000 used cars to any AutoNation USA used car stores and, and then stage a sale in mid to late September when many of those would-be buyers should have their insurance checks to replace their destroyed vehicles. Now, as the pedestrian advocate of this podcast, I have not carried auto insurance for a while, but it stands to reason that most people who own cars i mean we're not talking these are not all new cars high-end cars that were destroyed in this flood some of these some of these are cars that people have had for three and four years some of them are on leases and i would venture a guess that the majority of them don't have insurance that covers natural disasters is that accurate well it's I, i think all perils in your comprehensive collision coverage your collision is obviously that a collision but the comprehensive is just about everything else that can fall from the sky or from the ground and that sort of thing that covers your car however your point is that a lot of folks have used cars and when i had some old used cars i didn't have comprehensive uh, coverage on there or even collision on there i had where i if i hurt somebody else the liability coverage exactly but i didn't otherwise cover the car because it wasn't worth it because the car wasn't worth anything yep and so there are many cars like that where folks don't have insurance to replace it and they don't have any money to replace the car that they lost right well and some of them are going to be stuck making car payments on cars that they can no longer drive with no money to replace the car that they no longer have in the same way that a lot of homeowners are going to be stuck paying a mortgage on a home that no longer exists with no insurance money to purchase a new house but typically if you have payments on a car, your loan provider is going to make you have some kind of comprehensive or collision and or collision insurance. So therefore they get paid back. Um, And that's a requirement I know for me because on my Volt, they require that on that that car. 
um, because I I bought it and I'm I have the payments going for it, and so right. they require the same thing on my mortgage. They require I have homeowners insurance. Now they I, I don't technically live in a floodplain, but they would get paid back if you know something if something like that happened i mean it's it it to me it's just a reminder why you have to read the fine print with stuff like this because yeah. a lot of these homeowners in houston weren't technically in floodplains either no but what happens is as i understand the federal government comes in and then expands their floodplain area and then you can buy the flood insurance yeah after the fact so you're covered by buying the policy even after the flood as if you bought it before the flood that's what happens with a lot of homeowners in those areas, so they can have some kind of coverage. But usually it only goes up to like a quarter million dollars. Right. So you might have homes that are worth more than that, and then there's going to be a gap in that coverage. Right. Well, General Motors spokesman Jim Kane said the number of damaged vehicles at their dealerships is relatively modest, but he said there are several dealerships that are inaccessible, so the number will increase. GM will move new and used vehicles to Houston, but it won't be done until the infrastructure and the dealers are ready. Ford is still assessing the damage and their inventory needs. CarMax, the biggest U.S. used car dealer, opened its six Houston area stores on Labor Day. They said they're uh, mobilizing additional inventory into the region this week. Paul Lips, he's the chief operating officer at Odessa. It's a unit of car. It's uh, this auction service, which pretty much uh, dominates the U.S. car auction industry. Now, they said their Houston inventory is dry and ready for sale. One... Once all the roads are clear and employees can return to work safely, he says, they'll reopen business as usual. Now, now yeah. Isn't that something a used car salesman would say, though? <laughs> like, yeah. our cars are dry and ready to go. Yeah, no problem. Come on over <laughs> and get them. But like you say, another concern is how are these vehicles going to be treated as they come out to the market? I mean, uh, what will some of the water-damaged vehicles, will they be actually resold to someone else or end up in the auctions or sold in private sales between two people? And that water damage is never disclosed. That's going to be a big problem. So if you're looking at buying used cars, you better check those Carfax reports and make sure they didn't come from South Texas. That's just it. I mean, you're going to have to check your inventory no matter where you're from at this point to make sure, or when you're making a purchase, you're going to have to check to make sure that that inventory wasn't shuttled from Texas to, for example, and this is just a state that I'm pulling out of nowhere, Idaho. Yeah. Like who in Idaho would think that they're buying a flood damaged car? But there are going to be some dealers out there who move their inventory from Texas to other states with the sole purpose of deceiving people into buying damaged cars. And that's going to happen. And it's you're just going to have to make sure you get those Carfax reports because it should be should be in there. And another problem is going to be road damage. Because when the floodwaters do recede, it's going to be up to the local and state DOT to look at the structural integrity of the roads and those bridges that were underwater. Because it's not good for some of these areas to be underwater for that long. They're just not designed to be under that water. Right. There are, are going to be some areas that had uh, the ground wash away from the pavement, and they probably won't know it until some people start driving on it. Long-term water saturation could have damaged the bridges and the roads, and once the roads unofficially open, they might have to be closed again to assess any damage that is found, make repairs, and those could be long-term repairs and long-term closures for those folks down there that are already dealing with the long-term closures of some of the roads because they're flooded out. I mean, it's really a situation that's going to last for months and months and months. Because, you know, Houston traffic, it's one of the worst in the country, and all this flooding is going to make it worse, obviously, not only right now, but for months to come. The good news is the federal government looks ready and willing to cut repeated checks to Texas to make sure that this gets fixed. Yeah. 
So uh, we had fun. There's a lot of been a, a lot of fundraisers down there. I was talking. I went to uh, my tailor yesterday to get uh, my one of my pants fixed, and she said that she was already getting some donations of clothes from some of her customers, and they asked if they if she would send them down there to Texas. And she said, "Well, right now they're not asking for clothes; they're just looking for volunteers to, I mean, get people out of their homes and still right. start start cleaning up." They're looking for cash. They're looking to replenish some of their uh, stocks of food and water and all those sort of things. And then the clothes will come after. That's just it. I mean, it's going to take years. It's going to yeah. take years. And I've seen in a couple of places, and I think this is a very prescient point, if you are going to give, make it a point to do so regularly instead of only opening up the coffers when something bad happens. Because, I mean, look at New Orleans. They're still rebuilding the infrastructure there. There's Even now, there's still new construction going up in Florida in places that have been damaged by storms. In yeah. North Carolina and other places. I mean, this is a continual thing. Like, if you live... In areas like that, not necessarily Houston, infrastructure is going to get wiped out, and it's going to have to be rebuilt. I mean, you could you could argue that that uh, Homestead, Florida, and New Orleans, and some of the other areas along the Gulf Coast uh, are not normal and won't probably ever be normal again from before when those storms hit. And the same can be said here about Houston. We had the storm not too long ago that that went through Galveston I, I yep. would say that they're not probably still not normal so absolutely like you said I mean this could be decades if not centuries all right now tell me a funny story Jason all right well this time uh, <laughs> I do like funny stories all right so this is the first time I've ever heard of anything like this uh, James August of New Jersey he pleaded guilty to interfering with the flight crew members and the attendants there after his unruly behavior forced the pilot of a nonstop flight from Honolulu to New York. To return back to Honolulu, the judge says Mr. August owes Hawaiian Airlines $97,817. This guy had been vacationing in Hawaii with his girlfriend and her children. They say the guy was drinking before the flight. He then tried to order more alcohol on the plane and drank some alcohol he personally brought on board. During the meal service, his girlfriend's son told the flight attendant... This guy had insulted the children and threatened their lives. All right, so that's bad. If you're a flight attendant and you hear that from a kid, you're going to go, all right, this, this is a problem. Now, when the flight attendant asked this guy to go to another part of the plane to try to separate the family, he whacked her on the shoulder with the back of his hand, and the other passengers had to help to restrain this guy. Authorities say Mr. August then yelled, swore, and threatened to punch his girlfriend in the face. This guy likes to party, apparently. Come on, man. You're on vacation. In fact, you were just on vacation, so you should be rested and relaxed because you were in Hawaii. You would think. Right? You shouldn't be so angry that you threatened to punch your girlfriend in the face in front of her children. I have a hunch, and I cannot prove this theory, but we used to joke back when I was still single that... The first vacation was the true test of a relationship. You learn a lot about somebody that first time that you cohabitate with them for 72 hours or a week or however long it is at a time. And that can really be like the defining moment of a relationship. If you can go on vacation together, you can do anything together. This guy does not pass the first vacation test. No, he doesn't. And you know, that kid was actually uh, pretty great at protecting his mom when he told the flight attendant what was going on. Absolutely. I mean, let me go out on a limb here and say that kid doesn't really like this guy. <laughs> the judge in this case ordered the man to repay the airline the cost it incurred for turning the plane around, including fuel, maintenance, ground crews, and the cost associated with finding the passenger's other flights. 
The sum doesn't include the $46,900 of meal vouchers Hawaiian Airlines handed out to the delayed passengers. That $47,000, that's a lot of meals. I mean... Yeah. Interfering with a flight crew member and attendance is punishable by 20 years in prison, fines of $250,000. The judge sentenced Mr. August to three years of probation. So the lesson here, really, Joseph, if you're going to be getting drunk on an airplane, be a happy drunk and not a mean drunk. Not a mean drunk that wants to punch your girlfriend in the face. Right. And if you're a jerk, you're going to be paying for it for several years. I... I have a lot of words for this guy. None of them are allowed on this podcast. Well, it's common for us to use the GPS on our phone, right, to take us to where we want to go. Most people use the Waze app or the Google's Map app. So imagine this. If you used it and a cop saw you do it, you could get a ticket. That's what's happening in the U.K. right now. The new law against drivers using their phone while driving came up into effect in April. But it really wasn't until recently that this enforcement has been stepped up. Though it's not technically illegal to run the navigation app while you're driving... So you could start your car, run the navigation app, and just have it on. Drivers can face prosecution if they touch their device while driving. Think about that. You can, you can set it up before you start driving, but then you're not supposed to interact with it at all while you're driving. You can get a fine of $250 if you're caught, or even worse, if you had a license for just two years or less. So the young, new drivers, if you get caught, you lose your license. That's pretty steep. I mean, if you're using your map, that's a little ridiculous. Who doesn't use their map while driving unless you know a city like the back of your hand? Well, yeah, so you can have it on there, so you can watch it. You just can't interact with it. Ridiculous. Drivers get a ticket if an officer determines that the driver using their GPS hindered their ability to control their car. Well, that's pretty subjective. And there was a recent survey that showed British people have turned into GPS junkies relying too heavily on their navigators to cause... Uh, many accidents, I guess, and they're driving more dangerously. Now, according to the study, one in 20 drivers gets a speeding fine because of their quote-unquote addiction to GPS, which shows the wrong speed limit. Come on, why are you trusting your GPS for how fast you're going? You have a little indicator right there on your in, in your car. Yep. What's dangerous is when the GPS thinks I need to make a U-turn and I don't. And that happens far too often where the GPS is not able to keep up with the vehicle and so it gives you a lot of wrong directions and you wind up having to change lanes way quicker than you're comfortable with. The Waze app now will actually give you a little warning if it sees that you're going too fast if you have set it. So you, uh, if you're going, let's say, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, it'll give you a, uh, it'll warn you that you're going a little bit too fast. Interesting. So we got all that. Good work, Waze. All right. So, so have, you, have you ever been on the interstate and you were pulled over for speeding, Joseph? Yes, I'm an American, man. Like, there's <laughs> nothing more American than getting pulled over for speeding. Well, have you ever wondered what the state trooper's perspective is when they are about to pull you over and who they choose to pull over? Well, Minnesota State Trooper Jack Teagues, he says after he stops cars, he said he looks at what speed the driver was going, the demeanor of the motorist, and the driving record before issuing a ticket or giving you a warning. Now, Mike Conlon, he was working in a hurry. So he was speeding and he was driving south on Interstate 35. Unfortunately for Conlon, Jack Teagues was waiting in the freeway median right where the speed limit drops from 70 to 60. Hmm. Police never do that, do they? I don't think so. 
The veteran state trooper clocked Cochlin at 77 miles an hour, turned out of the median, and pulled over the St. Paul man over onto, a, onto the shoulder. Now, the uh, traffic stop was one of hundreds state troopers in the Minnesota State uh, Patrol make every day, and Teague's pulled it off with the same practiced approach that he's used for 10 years while working for the state. By the way, if you're going technically, the way I understand it, the speed limit changes at the sign. So... He had to wait till the till that driver passed the sign to then get him for that speed. I just want you to know that my father told me when I was a young dr- cub driver that the speed limit changes when you see the sign, which was his excuse to speed up when he saw the speed limit sign ahead of him said that he could go faster than he was actually going. No, it's at the sign, no, not when you tell see the sign. Tell that to my dad. There that's you all go. I'm saying. Well, Teagues prefers, quote, to let my speeders come to me, unquote, from a stationary roadside position. Even though I've seen a lot of uh, state patrol drivers, especially in those unmarked vehicles, they'll drive with traffic and wait for somebody to go really fast and they'll pull up behind them. Now, he picks his stakeout spots both for their clear view of the road and for how safe it will make the stop. When on speed duty, he usually starts off low-tech watching for cars that are outpacing traffic. He said, we just can't catch everybody. People are going a little over, usually get a pass in favor of people ripping by at 10, 15, or 20 miles an hour over the limit. He often goes for the car moving fastest, but if a group of cars are all speeding at the same rate, he has to choose. And often the car at the back of the pack is the easiest one to pull over. That is interesting because you always think that is the guy in the front that's going to get the speeding ticket when it could be you, the guy trailing, who thinks you're all safe because the guy in front's going to get hit first. It could be you that is actually the one getting the ticket. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. I think that I'm supposed to feel like I'm getting a clear understanding of the way that state troopers operate. But what I'm really feeling is just rage about the way state troopers operate. Like, Because I always operate on the impression, like you just pointed out, if somebody's going 85 miles an hour, then there's no harm in me getting behind them and doing 80 miles an hour because I'm not going to get pulled over. I'm just the guy following the guy who's going really fast. Apparently, that's not the case. I think it's at what distance? Because I, if I'm following somebody that is going really fast, I will follow at a farther distance. So I, so there's really no ambiguity to who's going really fast. And so if that officer is is monitoring the speed, they're they're going to have to wait a few seconds for me to come around. By then, he's already made his choice of of all right, this person's speeding. I'm going to flick on my lights and go after him. He's not looking for me at that point because I'm not part of a small, tight, packed group. Of speeding cars. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where a police officer throws on the blues and trying to pull over one speeding driver like me, and three people wind up pulling over to the yeah. side of the road <laughs> waiting for the officer to come say hello to them. Hey, that's three for one. Perfect. Uh, now, once this trooper has identified a likely speeder, Teague says he turns on his speed gun to get an initial speed reading as the vehicle approaches his stationary position. That's just the beginning, though. If that initial reading confirms the speeding, Teagues uses his patrol car's powerful acceleration to roar out of the median and into traffic. There, he gets a second or third speed reading from directly behind the vehicle. He says, quote, it also makes for great evidence in court when you've got multiple clocks in the vehicle. Now, he said initially they might be going 79 or 80 miles an hour. Then they might slow down to 76, 69 in a 55 zone. Well, those are all violations, so that's why they're doing that speed clock. The whole process from spotting a car to turning on the lights can take about 30 seconds or less 
Only when he's right behind a speeder will Teagues then turn on his lights and pull the driver over. But, you know, you already know. If you see a cop coming right at you and they get right in your bumper, even though the lights are not on, you know you're getting pulled over. I like to throw on the brakes so the cop rear-ends me and then I get a nice insurance <laughs> check. Personally. Do a little brake check? Yeah. Brake check. I saw a squirrel. Squirrel! <laughs> As Teagues walks up to the pulled-over car along the side of the road, his mind and eyes are both racing. He says he makes assessments on what's happening in the car. He looks in the back to note any passengers, pay special attention to any gun cases or other evidence of firearms he might see. He, Through all this time, though, Teague's dash camera is recording video with a microphone that his body picks up. Uh, so he's got the microphone on him, and the, and the camera is back there in the squad car. Now, at the driver's side window, he tries to be polite and firm when he starts talking to the driver. He always identifies himself as an officer with the state patrol. He asks for the license and proof of insurance. He says that he knows that this is a formal stop and they can be nervous, but he's going to try to be cordial to try to make the driver less nervous. He's also watching how cordial the driver that had stopped is. As troopers, we get a lot of discretion, especially with speeding violations, he said. Being polite to the officer can be a good way to get a warning or cited for a lower speed. Politeness is no guarantee, though, especially for particularly fast drivers or those with long driver records of of being a bad driver. Attitude, he says, and demeanor is a factor. The speed you're driving is a factor. You could be the politest person in the world and have a clean driving record, but if you're 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket from me. (laughs) That's what he said. Teague says the message is to slow down, that it's not worth it. He wants to tell drivers that if you really want to put money, pull money out of your pocket for speeding, it's, it's just not a good idea. The price isn't worth it. The consequences that could happen if you were involved in a serious crash because you were speeding, none of that stuff is ever worth it. That was according to the Minnesota State Trooper, Mr. Teagues. Can I tell you how infuriating it is to hear him say that he gets a lot of leniency or a lot of a lot of rope when it comes to determining what punishment to give to specific drivers? Like I, to me, that just screams. I'm going to write a ticket to people I don't like and not to people I do like, and that sets up discrimination in a heartbeat. Yes, I mean, and and it may be subtle. He may not. He may not be a racist, but. Tell me that's not a slippery slope. Like, let's take a look at who he writes tickets to and who he doesn't and really assess if he's being given a lot of rope or if he's really being fair. And what if you have it the opposite way? Let's say he's a white trooper and he's only writing tickets to white people he pulls over and then gives everybody else a pass. Right. What I mean, about that? Uh, well, well, and why, what... why doesn't anybody look at these? at, at the? Because the dash cam is always rolling when the lights are on, right? Right. So does anybody go back and look at these dash cams and say, oh, wow, you were following somebody that was going 75 at a 60. Why didn't you give that person a ticket? Well, and what if he's only writing ticket to women and letting all the men off the hook? You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's him, it just, if you're going to do it, be fair and be even-handed across the board. I don't want my police officers to not have some sort of stringent standard when it comes to this stuff. Like, yeah, everybody feels great when they get off with a warning, but I don't think we should have to, like, kiss up to the police officer in the hopes that this will be the day that he's feeling generous. So do you think that if they pull you over, you should get a ticket? Or if they're going to just let you go, they just let you go? If they've got the proof, they should write you the ticket. I'm sorry. Like, we have speeding laws. It's not like it's not against the law all of a sudden just because the police officer gave you a warning. It's a lot of things against the law that apparently skate right past it. It's... Well, 
enough about that, Joseph. Coming up, when you buy a new car, you always hope that it's going to last you a long time, right? I mean, it's one of your pride and joys. It's going to be a nice... I mean, it's fun to purchase a new car. The 15-year investment, yes, sir. Yeah, but one guy found out that it doesn't always work out that way. That and more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. I'm Adam Hammond, and you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. I feel like the Denver 7 morning show is unlike any other morning show. Everyone's just so energetic, and you can tell they care about everything that they're talking about. When it comes to the traffic with Jason or weather with Lisa, uh, they're just so passionate about both of uh, those angles of our morning news. And then just watching Dale and Mitch interact and talk about some of the things that they're familiar with. It really makes a difference when it comes to the news, because you could just tell that everything they're saying they're involving themselves in, and uh, it's just a, a great show, very entertaining. Amanda Del Castillo, only on Denver 7. Who's your favorite person on the show to work with? Oh, it's myself. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, one of the advantages is I think we all get along on the show. Um, I mean, I don't really care for the other people on the program. I think they're all kind of... Uh... Mitch Jelnicker, only on Denver 7. Avanti a me dal mazzo delle carte Scegliene una e ti dirò se buona la fortuna Prendine un'altra per sapere Welcome back to the Driving You Crazy podcast I have no idea what this guy is singing about, Joseph But it sounds nice to me Can we have Eric Lufa record us a theme song? A theme song? Yeah, sure I'll, I'll, I'll. It's driving you crazy <laughs> I want to imagine it's something like eating pasta, I mean, the, drinking my, wine all day. My first thought was like ravioli and Parmesan cheese, so. Probably not quite as fun as that. He's probably singing of a lost love or <laughs> swimming in the ocean or like something. like when you go to the opera and you can't understand what they're saying, <laughs> but it's like supposedly the saddest stuff ever. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I can't do opera. I just can't do it. I just can't. We do should the go opera. sometime, man. Driving you crazy Together? takes the opera. Yeah, we'll bring our wives too. I'm going to Frozen. That's that's enough for me. Well, that's not the opera though. That's fun. <laughs> it's uh, September fifteenth. I think I'm going. Are you? Have your daughter started singing the song again? I don't even remember the name of the song. That's how long it's been. Let it go. Frozen. Yes. Let it go. No. We have, we don't, we're, no. We're into uh, Moana. Because we have a Moana birthday party. I have birthday parties coming up with my little girls. Moana is going to make a surprise visit at the house. Well, I, I was going to say Let It Go is about to make a strong comeback into your life, but maybe not if Moana's Yeah, no, Moana's house. coming over. And then we're also going to have a baton twirling birthday party in a couple weeks for the older one. But we're all into um, Disney princesses, including the uh, Elena of Avalor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, um, they're big into Sophia. Okay. The first. Not the second, Sophia the first. Uh, and th- those are the big ones. They, and, you know, they love the other stuff. But. I don't have kids, so you're speaking a foreign language <laughs> to me. <laughs> it might as well be pops and clicks at this point. <laughs> um, I did want to ask, which of your daughters is more likely to uh, grow up to play ice hockey? Do you already have one of them? That would be Jolene, be the, the, the little one. It's about to turn six. She's the rough and tumble one. Excellent. Yes. No. She she likes to play. It's it's what's called Jungle Daddy. Instead of Jungle Jim, it's Jungle Daddy, where she tries to crawl on me, 
like I'm some kind of a gorilla or something, and then she's all over me. Isn't that nice, though, man? I mean, that's one of the benefits of being tall is that you, you're strong enough to get away with that yeah. stuff. It's not like you're 5'6", and she's hanging <laughs> they off want me you. to both hold them, and they are heavy little girls. All right, so 151 miles. 151 miles. That's all Greg Ellison got with his brand-new 2017 Honda Civic. He flew from Philadelphia to Boston to pick up the car. He got picked up by a salesperson with the paperwork already done. All he had to do, he said, was slap on a plate and drive it home. The car had 12 miles on it when he picked it up. So while he was heading south on I-95, about halfway through Connecticut, the brand new hot hatchback met its fate. Traffic slowed and then went eventually to a stop. During the pause, Ellison changed the radio station and then, in his words, smash. Greg wasn't hurt in the crash that happened, he said, because the other driver wasn't paying attention and hit him from behind and then pushed him into another car. He said the other guy hit him going 30 to 35 miles an hour and didn't even hit the brakes. Again, he wasn't hurt, neither were any of the other drivers, but the Civic sustained some pretty severe front end and rear end damage, and it had to be towed home. How sad is this story? So what started off as an exciting trip in a brand new car turned into a five-hour ride home in a tow truck. That's the worst part of the story. Yeah, well, Greg's story blew up on his Facebook page when he posted it. It's the kind of story that is especially painful, one that really resonates with anyone who's ever been excited to get a new car. So what's next for Greg? He says he's pretty confident that other driver's insurance will pay for most of the car, right? But Mm -hmm. he paid $39,000 out the door for that car, which is why one of the reasons, I guess, he flew from one state to another to go get it. Uh, but he says he might have to pay the remainder that wasn't covered, the gap part of it, that wasn't covered in insurance. He didn't have gap insurance. Interesting. I'd also be interested. This is a good test case for uh, how much the value of your car drops when you get it off the lot. Because if you pay $39,000 out the door for it, insurance is going to reimburse him for, what, like twenty eight? Yeah, something like that. So he didn't have that gap. And poor guy's out of a car after 150 miles how sad is that that's awful after buying i mean i i bought a couple of well i've leased a bunch of cars i've bought a new truck one time and i bought my volt um and it is one of the great feelings to buy it it's also one of the saddest feelings knowing that you are driving off the lot and you're and a ton of money just dropped right there under the pavement evaporated i will say this jason Though you are older than me, I would be willing to bet that I have totaled more cars than you have in my lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why you're now a pedestrian advocate. That certainly is why I'm the pedestrian. Well, how are you with the handling of uh, turbulence on a flight? It depends on how drunk I am when I get on the flight, to be honest with you. Hopefully not drunk enough to punch your wife in the face. No, but just drunk enough to handle the turbulence. When I'm sober, I'm pretty white-knuckled about it. But if if I've got a few beers in me, I'm okay. See, I used to fly in the news chopper every day, and there were times that the strong turbulence made me, I wouldn't say sick, it just made me nervous. Um, as uh, So I'm not an overly nervous flyer, but that came with, you know, almost, what, 8,000 flying hours in a helicopter. I am assuming that you got drunk before getting into the news helicopter. Every, every day, day. Every single day. Uh, but I also said to myself every flight that, I, look, I'm getting into this vehicle here voluntarily. I have no control as to what happens. So uh, not that I want to crash, but if I crash, it happens. I've already made that conscious decision to get on board the aircraft, right? So thankfully, it never happened to me. We, I mean, we came close a bunch of times to, to crashing either with other uh, aircraft hitting us or going into the ground. But... Wait, we got to stop here. Close. 
How yeah. close is close? I remember one example when we were flying. This was when in the radio days. We're flying north uh, right here across downtown, and here comes Channel 4 right at our altitude, right at us. I mean, within, I don't know, a couple hundred yards, and so the pilot dives right. That's his, you know, fail-safe dive right, and, and I mean, it was pretty close to having a mid-air collision. I remember another time we were looking for a downed airplane up by Winter Park. And it was because of the wind. The winds forced this airplane to crash. Uh So naturally, the news people want us to fly in the dangerous winds and go look for this downed airplane. So what happened was the pilot, he was uh, critically injured and actually ended up dying. And the passenger was alive. He kept trying to get up to the top of this mountain and get um, a cell signal and and ask rescuers to help. Well, they couldn't track him down. So they actually asked us to help if we could find him. So we're up there flying. And it was so windy at one point. So there, there's this lever in the helicopter to make the houses get smaller is what I called it, which okay. you know, goes up and down, the collective. Um, and so as he, the, the pilot has it full on, so we're try, we should be going straight up, and instead we're actually going straight down. Uh, so we are just maybe a couple hundred feet above the trees at that point. I mean, I'm seeing the trees, and I'm seeing the t- basically the needle tree. And we, then the, the downdraft gets, uh, let's go, and then we, we go off again. We actually did find the guy. Got the GPS coordinates uh, radioed into the um, rescue people who actually had to get some people in, um, uh, like, parachute, basically parachute in there or hike up there and, and, then, and then rescue this guy. Um, I'm good. I'm not cut out for that job. Yeah. <laughs> no, there were, there were definitely some harrowing times. I'll tell you. My wife hates turbulence. She just hates it. Um, she gets so nervous. She'll grab onto my arm. And, she, and, and there was one time coming back from Florida where the plane dropped. Where everybody, where you actually get lifted out of your seat a little bit. Oh yeah! Oh, that really freaked her out. Really, freaked. so she freaks out. She grabs my hand. She has that you know really worried look on her face. She's just not a happy camper. And for most people, turbulence can really range from just annoying to downright frightening. And and you don't have to be an anxious flyer to get worked up by it. It's hard to avoid turbulence when you're flying, but you can control how you handle it. So there's a guy. His uh, he's a pilot. His name is Patrick Smith, and he runs a website called. Ask the pilot, and he talks about all things in the air, including turbulence on planes. And he wrote an article about the subject, which explains why you generally shouldn't worry about the turbulence. He says, from a pilot's perspective, it's ordinarily seen as an inconvenience issue. It's not not a safety issue. It's just not very comfortable for him or the people on the plane. So when the flight changes altitude in search of smoother conditions by this, and and a large interest of comfort, really, for the entire flight crew... The pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're just trying to keep their customers relaxed and everybody's coffee where it belongs, you know, on on their tray and not flying in the air. Right. Planes themselves are engineered to take a remarkable amount of punishment, and they have met huge stress limits for both positive and negative G-loads. Now, it doesn't make us feel better thinking that the plane's not going to fall apart. Maybe it does a little bit. With a, when it's bouncing around like crazy. No, that is how I comfort myself, is by saying, these are professionals, this is what planes are supposed to do. Like, you don't need to worry about the fact that your teeth are chattering involuntarily. See, the level of turbulence required to dis- really dislodge an engine or bend a wing is something even the most frequent flyer or pilot, for that matter, won't experience in a lifetime of traveling. So just take it, take it that way. If you can see them uh, from your seat, if you, if you can see how the flight crew is reacting to the turbulence, that's a good indication of how bad it is and how dangerous it could be. If they're calm about it, then likely you have nothing to worry about, even if it feels like to you pretty serious. So here are some tips to help you out if the turbulence does freak you out. 
If you want to min- minimize the feeling of the turbulence, then your seat preference is really key. When buying your ticket, you should get a seat as close to the middle of the airplane, right over the wings if possible, because turbulence will be felt less in that part of the airplane. If you have stuff to distract you within arm's reach, that helps. Like maybe it's a book you can't put down or your favorite movie. You can watch a TV show or something or maybe just listen to some calming music. You probably won't need a barf bag, but if you do, be glad you have it. Your seat, I think Lisa Hidalgo uses a barf bag sometimes. Ugh. Your your seat might already come with one. I, I can't remember seeing them too often on the airplanes anymore. So if not, if you don't have one, then you ask the crew member for one when you get on. Well, it's an upcharge on Spirit. It's oh, is $5 it? $5 for the barf bag. <laughs> well, then bring your own. Yeah, there you, you go. Can bring, but to make sure that it's able to hold liquids. Uh, if you have some comfy or feel-good stuff, like a soft blanket, a neck pillow, maybe your favorite hoodie or slippers, they all, can all go really a long way to help you relax and be calmer, in, a, in really a calmer state of mind when the turbulence comes up. You can be like my daughters and grab their blankets, or what they do is they call them their BBs. Uh, when the turbulence does hit, it's helpful to have a couple of techniques to calm yourself down until it passes, though, like breathing exercises. If you do yoga or meditation, that might already have the breathing exercises that work for you. If you don't, then try one that focuses on breathing in four seconds, out for eight seconds, something like that. You can reduce the vibrations by lifting your feet off the floor. That sometimes reduces or lessens the feeling of the vibrations you feel from the turbulence. If you're going to go with the flow instead of tensing up, focus on relaxing your muscles so you, so you move with the turbulence instead of against it. It can be hard to do, obviously, but it also gives you something else to think about. You can also remind yourself that other modes of transportation are often bumpier than air turbulence, like uh, if you're on a bus in um, Savannah on River Street. The bus is such a <laughs> crucial example. I mean, if you think about the amount of potholes that you hit on a bus, it's nothing, It's like five times the amount of turbulence you see you experience on an airplane. Really, if you just think about right now when you're driving on any any roadway, you, there's a lot of bumps there, and, and you're shifting and moving on any road you, you drive on. Or if you're riding a bike, I mean, there's a lot of bumps when you're riding a bike. Uh, trains are obviously pretty smooth for the most part, but, you, you know, you get swayed back and forth on a subway or on the light rail, so they, they do move a little bit. But when the engines quit on the subway... You're just going to coast to a stop and not plummet to earth at 1,000 miles an hour. I got cast away on DVD for Christmas the year after it came out. <laughs> Didn't know what the movie was about, so I put it on in the airplane. And like oh. 10 minutes in as the plane is crashing, <laughs> the guy in the seat behind me taps me on the shoulder. He's like, can you not? Can you turn that off, please? <laughs> like, <laughs> that is a great movie. I, that is one of my favorite it's movies. It's a classic. I love it. But like I said, I, I just put up with it, much like I do with Lisa Hidalgo. Uh, I just try to get through the uncomfortableness and move on with my life. With the turbulence and with Lisa. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. All right. When people don't think they're being recorded or having their picture picture taken, they, they do things they probably wouldn't normally do, right? If they if they knew a camera was on. I mean, when you see a camera on you, you probably are on your best behavior, right? Well, reality television is proof that even when the cameras are on you, you kind of forget that they're there and you wind up doing dumb stuff anyway. Yes. But when this happens behind the wheel... You get to really see what drivers are, are doing when they think nobody is recording them. Now, as we know, people doing other things other than driving while driving is usually considered bad, like eating or reading or sleeping. You shouldn't be doing those things while you're driving. There have been a number of truck drivers who in England have been caught apparently eating and reading and using their mobile phones on the roads there in Britain. So the U.K. press agency, they set up a camera. And they started taking pictures of drivers while they were driving to see all the things they are doing other than driving. 
They caught one driver who appeared to have their arms crossed and elbows on the steering wheel to steer. I I don't know why you would want to do that. Many others were apparently looking at paperwork. They were talking on their cell phone. One driver was seen holding a piece of cutlery and a food container. You can't do that, bro. You can't can't use chopsticks or knife and fork behind the wheel. It's got to be all sandwiches or chicken fingers. And there was another driver seen eating some Chinese food, like you said. And to make it more challenging, he was using the chopsticks. Can't do that. Can't do that. You can't do that. No, you can't do that. No salads behind the wheel. No spaghetti. Like, But, you know, that would actually be a great story for us to do is to park a camera up here on I-25 somewhere and just take pictures of the people doing things in their car as they're sitting in traffic. I actually wanted to pitch this out to you. Do you think it would be weird if I wore a helmet with a GoPro on it so I could record all the weird stuff that I see on my walks to work? I think it would be brilliant. And I think you should, one, do a Facebook Live okay, while you're walking, and then you should post it to, you know, everywhere. But weird, too, right? Yes. Like, I well, would be the weird guy with the helmet cam. cam. <laughs> that's why I have a dash cam, so I can post these weird things that happen. I, I, I happen to be working the overnight shift, so I was walking to work at 1 in the morning the other day, and, I mean, you just see a guy turn, turn the wrong way down a one-way street at 1 in the morning, and you know he's drunk. Like, yeah. there's no excuse for doing that. But, you know, what can you do? So, yes, those are the types of things that I would be able to catch on my helmet cam that makes me look ridiculous. Now, now the leading theory is that some of these truck drivers think that because they are so high up in their cab, it's harder to spot them doing improper things while driving. That's why it was so brilliant to get up on a uh, higher platform on a bridge and take pictures of these people. So police forces around England have been using unmarked vehicles, including other trucks, to catch drivers engaging in distracted activities behind the wheel and give them tickets. So that led me to this story where I was, it was proposed to me by one of the folks there in the web staff. They asked me, what are some of the five best and worst habits among Colorado drivers? So I, I had to stop and think about it because I could come up with a lot of worst. Worst was easy. Best is, is a little bit more difficult. So I, I started with the worst. Number one, aggressive drivers. Anecdotal. Was it yesterday or the day before? It had to be the day before. No, it was Monday. So it was the holiday. I'm driving home from work. And I'm going, I'm, I'm driving on, on an on a interstate. I'm, it's a 65-mile-an-hour zone. I'm going 68. That's pretty reasonable, right? Yeah. I was in the one, two, lane number three out of four. So I was you know, over to the right a little bit. I'm not kidding. I was passed by everybody, even people in the right lane. I was going 68 in a 65. And I was still past, like I was doing, these people were going 70 plus, 70 to 75 miles an hour, all of them. Anecdotal. I mean, it was just, it it was, I was a little bit taken aback by how many people were going faster than me. It's true. I mean, they're in no danger of getting pulled over for the most part, though. No. From what I've seen, there's very few troopers on the highway that actually pay attention to speeders. Well, we have some aggressive drivers here, that's for sure. And it includes speeding, tailgating, weaving, horn, honking, uh, and more and more common occurrence, especially in downtown Denver than ever before, is the horn honking. I, I, I think that happens a lot more now because we have a lot more transplant drivers that brought their horn honking to downtown Denver. Uh, anecdotally, I was walking across the street as well, and I was waiting at the traffic light to cross right over here. But one of the drivers that uh, was accelerating past me did, did it, as it seemed, with their gas pedal all the way down and through the floor. A very fast acceleration. No more smooth, slow, easy starts. It was all punch it and go, baby. So I think aggressive drivers is, is, was had to be number one. All right. I, I also thought unwillingness to merge. Another anecdotal story. Yesterday, I'm trying to get on the highway from University to southbound I-25. 
And here comes, so I'm going to get there at about the same time this, this uh, semi-truck is going to get there, right? So I was already going to slow down. Well, this guy, I could hear the engine already revving on this truck. So I know he's not going to let me in, and it's a really short ramp, so you have to either get in front or get behind real fast. There's no acceler- you know, a time to accelerate. You have to get going. And so I, <laughs> I knew I had to slow down. I mean, I'm convinced now more than ever that drivers here not only reject, but are not even willing to attempt to be civilized when it comes to merging. It's kind of disgusting, actually. I mean, you, you can't get anybody to be polite to you on the road and allow you in anymore. You just can't. Everywhere that we go, from here to Evergreen, when we're on the highway, if there is a merge, you can guarantee that the first person, like, if you're right next to somebody, they're going to hit the gas. And oh, we're yeah. going to hit the gas, too, because we're so conditioned to it that, you know, you, you feel like you have to throw elbows rather than just politely allowing the person to go in front of you. This is why we will never, ever, ever get all the drivers here, especially here, I I think really countrywide, but especially here, to adopt the zipper merge. I see it all the time. It's just not in in the, like, it's that not in front of me mentality. That's really what it is, I think. It's taken over all drivers. They just say, you're not getting in front of me, even if the, and this is the best part. So they'll get in front of me, and then I'll get over into the next lane, because it's in that right lane, and I'll get over into, into the next lane to them, and then I'll not speed past. I mean, I'll just drive right past them. Right. So I've already made it past them. I'm already now ahead of them, and they couldn't. All right. I'll stop. Number three, not paying attention to pedestrians or bicyclists. I'm sure you see this lots. Look, I think a much more interesting list for me would be the five most annoying habits of bicyclists. Number one would be just going in traffic against a red light. You're supposed to follow the same rules as drivers. Why are you going against a red light? Number two, driving on a sidewalk when there's literally a bike lane not on the sidewalk right next to us. Why are you on the sidewalk? Why are you making life more difficult for pedestrians? We built you a bike lane. We heard your concerns. Get off the sidewalk. Go on. And get in the bike lane. Seriously. I mean, nearly daily I report on car pedestrian crashes and car bike crashes. I saw one the other day, man. 10th and Broadway. This idiot, two of them, decided they were going to cross the street diagonally because they didn't see any traffic coming from the from the um, southbound lane on Broadway. So they decided they were just going to cross diagonally and get across the – you know how you, when you're at the light you have to go – if you're trying to get across the street, you have to sometimes cross twice. Right. So they decided they were just going to go diagonally, save themselves some work. Well, the light turned red and the other light turned green, and they're stuck in the middle of the intersection, <laughs> and we're trying to go – like, what What are you doing? And so my wife lays on the horn. They look at us like, we're mean. I'm like, what? Think. Think before you cross. Pedestrians and bicyclists, I'm sorry. Like, I'm as sad as the next person when I see a pedestrian crash or a bicycle crash. But y'all have to pay attention and follow the rules. They apply to you, too. You can't just trust that you're going to collect an insurance check if the driver happens to go when you're in the middle of the intersection. That move is actually called the Barnes Dance. And it was legal in downtown Denver at a time where they actually had the the pedestrian signals allow you to cross diagonally through the intersection. Well, and they should bring that back. But at the same time, these people were definitely not old enough to remember when no. the Barnes dance was something that was legal <laughs> in downtown Denver. All right, number four, large number of old cars on the street. The, the web guy, Mark, kept talking about this one. He kept saying that he sees old cars all the time. He said, uh, just a quick glance at I-25 traffic in rush hour. Reveals that there's a large number of luxury vehicles on the road, but a plethora of old and oftentimes dangerous vehicles on the road. And and, and for him, it presented a concern that they were just going to break down at any moment. Now, I I thought he was a little bit crazy, but okay, whatever, Mark. You know, (laughs) sometimes you're at a point in your life where you have to drive an old car. 
Exactly. I drove old cars. I love old cars. I would rather. I I feel more comfortable behind the wheel of a beater than I do behind a newer car. Honestly. And this one he didn't know, and I, I brought this up to him. Driving fast in the snow because it's really a phenomenon that I notice all the time. Some drivers think the snowy roads actually means drive faster than if the road was just dry. I, I don't know why they're, they're. Maybe they're just torqued off at the snow. Maybe they're just angry at other drivers that go the speed limit or a little bit slower because they're concerned about their driving ability in the snow and, and the loss of traction. Uh, or they, Maybe they just want to prove they're the best snow drivers in the entire state. I see it all the time, people speeding when, they're, when, they're, when it's snowing. It's true. Well, and I think, to your point, when people invest in a car that is supposed to be good in the snow, they want to burn up when it's snowing outside, oh, yeah. and that is what the problem is. And I see it, you know, I, I think we can all point out the most likely offenders, pickup trucks and Subarus. Yep, because I, I saw, I remember seeing one time a large pickup going left, going fast in the left lane, it was snowing, truck started to slide, and then it got traction again, and then all of a sudden it just slingshotted, I mean, like if you were pulling back the rubber band and bam, right into the center wall. Truck parts go flying, smash into a million pieces. I, I Look, I can go fast in the snow too, but I'd rather take a few extra minutes to get somewhere safely and in all in one piece than deal with the inconvenience of getting into wreck. That's, that, that's my life. My life is all about minimizing inconvenience. My life is about not feeling stressed out when I'm driving. And if that means going slower than everybody else, so be it. <laughs> My first suggestion, though, when Mark actually asked me about this story and asked me about this question, some of the, the, the annoyances, uh, it was nose pickers. I see a lot of nose picking going on these roads. I see a lot of it. People think they're in their little bubble. They're invisible for the most part. That's what they think. Even though the glass is clear, people, you can see inside your car and see what you're doing. I can see you when you're picking your nose while you're driving. Mark wrote a quick survey of the Denver 7 newsroom, found that nose-picking habits among Colorado drivers is just considered gross. What else is it considered? Hygienic. <laughs> you got to clean that out somehow. My wife calls it uh, cleaning out the barn door, the barn office, or the barn room, or the barn stance. I don't know. Something like Digging that. for gold. Uh, so, so, all right, so those are some of the worst habits. Uh, what about some of the best habits of, of drivers? That was a much harder list for me to come up with. No good habits. No, no, no good habits of drivers. I, so uh, the first one I said was the courtesy wave. Because there are still, there's more common here than you might think. Because I still see, just the other day, I did see somebody else give me a courtesy wave when I let them in. You, you still get it. When you let them in, you slow down, whatever. I, I think the courtesy wave is still, I, still I, th- I think it's still there. I grew up in a part of the country where the courtesy wave was expected. And so I, I find myself waving on behalf of my wife when she is driving, even if she is not waving at the person. Typically, this is to people in crosswalks and stuff like that. But Maybe we should do a whole segment on the courtesy wave. Big fan of the courtesy wave. Uh, neighbors helping neighbors. Because I think this is still more of a caring state than other places where people will still help people if they really need it. Like when stranded on the side of the road, there will be drivers that will pull off to the side, offer assistance, lend that helping hand. Make a phone call if they need it. I, I see it with my neighbors all the time. I see it on the road. So I think I, I think we are good at neighbors helping neighbors, and that includes drivers helping some other drivers. Uh, knowledge of the, of the roads, I, I do think that Colorado drivers, at least the, the, the ones that have been here for a while, I think they know the roads fairly well. They, they know them well enough to recognize when traffic problems are going to slow you down and, and maybe one other way or a couple other ways to get around it. I think they, they know how to circumvent some trouble spots in some of the busy roads. Well, and I would say also that because of the way the city's laid out, it's a lot easier to know some of the alternate routes. Yeah. 
And so I agree with you. I think that we're we're very resourceful when it comes to avoiding getting stuck in a big backup. And and animal, I think animal awareness also. Due to the diversity of terrain, Coloradans have always been aware of animals, wildlife. Uh, but the size of the creatures encountered in the roadways here increases significantly as you travel into the foothills and the mountains. So I think Coloradans have proven they'll go to great lengths to avoid hitting animals on the highway. Uh, and clean cars. This was one of Mark's things. Uh, just because a car is old doesn't mean that it won't be clean, both both in the winter and summer. I, I think a lot of people like to keep their cars clean, especially in the wintertime. They seem to be on top of it in, 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 it's because you have all that goop from after the snow melts that's on the roads that gets in on the car and under the car. And you gotta you got to wash off all those chemicals that gets on there. Uh, so it doesn't look like it has all those holes, like it has cancer or something on the side of the car. That's what we used to say in the 70s. All those older cars with the rust that was, you know, on the side when I was growing up in Detroit. Mm-hmm. My, my brothers and I, we used to joke that, it, that the car has cancer. Well, and I had a Mazda Protégé where the back bumper was, like, completely rusted out to the point that it was borderline falling off. And I just, you know, you forget what good-looking cars look like. And then I saw the same model car without all the rust spots on it. And it's like, geez, that's... What could have been? Yes, what could have been? Had I taken better care of my vehicle. So I agree with you, man. It's important to, it, A, it's important to upkeep your vehicle. And the old joke about how it's going to rain, so I don't need to worry about washing my car. Go get, go get your car washed, dude. Like, don't let it be dirty. I'm sure there's other good habits of, of drivers. I don't believe that. I, I just can't think of any right now. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, man. I, I find there to be a lot of rudeness on the roads. I very rarely come off of a long road trip and say, man, that was a good experience. Yeah. It's so much easier to find the negative than the positive. Right. But we here on the Driving You Crazy podcast want to always look at the positive, don't we? It's true. So we, I want to put together an informal poll. What is the rowdiest bus route in Denver? Oh, it's got to be the 15 on East Colfax. You know, and I said the 16, which does the other side of Colfax. Right. And Oscar Contreras, one of our web guys, said, no, it's definitely the 15. He, oh, yeah. He, These are the 15. I would I – would, maybe the zero that goes down along Broadway, but may, mine's, the, mine's the 15. I know, it, I, I'm going with the 16, but I want to get more opinion on this because we don't talk enough about – the perils of public transportation. And I'm telling you, man, you see some stuff on the 16. Well, see, that's what we need. We need a photographer to go out on those buses and just kind of hang out with a GoPro strapped to his head like you wanted to, uh, and then just, just see what happens. I not only want the GoPro strapped to my head, but I want a second GoPro that's like on a selfie stick that extends out from the same helmet so I can get the back shot. So you have the one shot of me looking forward and then the other shot looking back at me so I can react to the people as they judge me from my helmet camera. <laughs> and to see when you're about to be attacked. But then I want a third camera that's just following me, <laughs> like at 100 yards, just to watch me. And then I want to also be able to take the Denver 7 roof camera so that it can spot me as, and pick me up on spear. Should we launch the helicopter too? Why don't we? Do we have a drone just that we a can, drone. can follow you just around? Just a drone, man. Oh, that's God. all I'm asking for. Yeah, sure. Let's get all the resources out here for you and your little uh, project stories. Walking in Denver. Perfect. We're going to have Eric Lufer record a theme song for that, too. Okay. I'll ask him. We should have that hopefully within a week or never. Uh, anyway, thanks again for being here. We appreciate you all uh, listening and being part of the podcast. Thanks again for being here. I already said that. Uh, until next time, I'm Jason Lufer, the traffic guy. I'm helmet camera advocate Joseph Peters. <laughs> Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.